So <clears throat> please make, um, make yourself comfortable, if that's possible. And um, also, if um, at some point my voice drops and you can't hear me clearly enough, or I say something that um, you, you don't understand, then please um, stop me. And I'll do my best to increase the volume and uh, to be clearer. No guarantees about either one, naturally. I'm very, uh, very pleased that there's more light here today. <laughs> I don't know if you've noticed that. <laughs> A bit more power, at least for now. Maybe we've, um, we've generated it with our practice, brought more um, illumination into the world. So I'd like to, um, to speak a little bit more about um, the practice that, that we've primarily been engaging with for the last couple of days and will stay um, as our main practice through tomorrow. And in the opening talk, we, we spoke about it, we introduced it as, as samatha uh, practice, which um, Nathan was speaking about as calmness, or often um, translated as calm abiding. And samatha is um, very, very closely related, or leads into um, samadhi practice, which is uh, a word some of you, many of you have probably heard very, um, very closely related and sometimes actually interchangeable when we're, when we're speaking in this way. And samadhi is a really interesting um, word. It is most commonly translated as concentration into English. Most commonly translated as concentration. And uh, it really uh, doesn't um, quite do it justice. The, um, when you break down the word, what it le- literally means is um, a coming together on the particular. A coming together on the particular. That's the, the literal meaning of, of that word. Um, and when we translate it as concentration, um, which, which has its uses, for most of us, what that brings to mind is a sense of um, a focus, um, sometimes even one-pointed focus or one-pointed concentration. Um, and this is an aspect or an element of samadhi, but um, it's not the only one. It's only one kind of face of it, one aspect of it. And it's, it's interesting to reflect on this because um, I think for most of us, when we uh, kind of hear the word concentration, hear the word focus, um, hear the, this, the idea of one-pointedness, um, and, and just see for yourself kind of how it meets you right now when I say that. But for most of us, what comes up in relation to that is some sense of a narrowing down some sense of a narrowing down. And sometimes with that, there's, there's some degree of tension that builds up. 
And that um, is not the, the intention of samadhi practice at all. So if, if I say that, you know, focus, concentration, one-pointedness, they're aspects of samadhi practice, but that narrowing down that happens to us in, in relation to, to, these, to these ideas, these words, that has got very little with, with samadhi. Very, very little. So what is it? I've <laughs> kind of spent a few minutes saying what I think it's not. And, and maybe I should say here, you know, obviously everything I say is, is my view. So it's not, um, you know, it's not some kind of um, absolute truth. So if you disagree, that's absolutely fine. And so what is samadhi, if I've kind of touched on, on, on what I think it isn't? A friend of mine, uh, Rob Obeya, who's a, a wonderful um, teacher, he speaks of, um, of samadhi as um, a unification of mind and body or a harmonization of mind and body. You know, these kind of, and, and these are kind of, they give a bit of the flavor, I feel, speaking about it in this way. Um, or harmonization of the being. And samadhi has with it a, a sense of, will, of well-being and of um, wholesomeness to it. Um, really important here to say that to a degree. So again, something that our, our mind does, and if you've been around Dharma teachings and you've heard the word samadhi, it probably will do it more. <laughs> um, we, we kind of attach a certain weight to, to ideas or ideals of a state, you know. So it can be like, ah, a state of well-being, you know, I should feel bliss, you know. That, that's samadhi. Really, really helpful to, to see, and, and we've said it a few times, but to see m- almost everything in our experience is a spectrum. And these kind of big concepts or big words that come up in practice this is true for them as well. So samadhi is, is a spectrum. You know, it's not just some state that we've heard of, read about, you know, which would be one, one kind of very intense or extreme aspect of it on that spectrum. I'm doing what Nathan did yesterday. <laughs> Maybe we'll get some rainbows eventually and keep doing that. So it's just, it's one extreme. But that means that it can be available to us also in kind of less intense, less glorified (laughs) degrees. And a lot of our practice is discovering that. A lot of the practice is discovering that, uncovering that. So I'll probably come back to this, but um, one really important, very practical aspect of this practice is that it's rooted in body awareness. Rooted in body awareness. So again, sometimes we think about it and we kind of think about the state of the mind. You know, very clear, very radiant, very luminous, whatever it is. 
but this is it actually it involves our whole being and is really rooted in the body awareness and this can include the breath but doesn't have to it's really important to say it now you know we've had the experience of sometimes you know teach retreats and we really emphasize mindfulness of breathing or samadhi practice through the breath as we've been doing today Um, and that doesn't work for everybody and sometimes people really struggle because they think they should be getting someone with a breath and it's not happening so if you're one of those people the, the important aspect is the body awareness And it's important because when we really kind of open, um, expand the awareness into the body, become more sensitive to life and experience as it manifests in the body, that really widens the field for us, widens the field of what we come into contact with and how we come into contact with it. And also, you know, if I was speaking about this as a unification of mind and body, then obviously we need to be present in the body as well. So we've been, there's many doorways or many practices with this um, cultivation of samadhi, cultivation of this sense of harmonization, of well-being. And we've, we've actually touched on quite a few of them. Um, just in the in the kind of less than two days that we've been practicing and I just want to kind of again just highlight them just bring them out so one doorway is um, the expanded awareness that we were doing primarily yesterday um, but also as part of the practice today stretching out the awareness and having a sense of awareness in the whole body and a little bit beyond the body that kind of bubble or cocoon of awareness. That's one doorway. Using the breath as, as we've been doing today, using the breath as a way of getting in touch, breath as energy, getting in touch with the bodily experience, getting in touch with this wide awareness. And the third doorway that we've already uh, really been exploring is meta practice, or we've just begun and will continue today. So meta practice is also a samadhi practice. And really interesting, um, if you've done meta practice before, particularly or even reflecting on how you were practicing yesterday, how do I practice meta, which is, you know, we're using the phrases so it can feel quite mental, but actually doing that really rooted and grounded in the body, with that body awareness as well. Really, really interesting to to play with that. So, I just want to say a few words about um, body awareness practices and um, kind of the different um, techniques or different flavors that they have in, in the Buddha Dharma, in the Buddhist tradition. Um, so sometimes, and Nathan again was touching on it uh, this morning, some um, body awareness practices 
focus on working with the physical sensations in the body. You know, if we're doing mindfulness of breathing and we're working with the physical sensations of the breath, or, you know, we're working with pain in the body and we're working with the physical sensations of pain. These are body awareness practices that really work with the physical sensations. Another, a second type of body awareness practices are um, working with the, what we'd call the materiality of the body. And these are, they're much less common in the West, but they're very much present in, in the <coughs> texts. Um, working with elements meditation, some of you have done that, with the physical elements that make up uh, the physical world, the material world. Yeah, not just our bodies, but everything, um, which are um, earth, water, fire, air, and space, just to, to put them out where we're not going to go into that now, but working with that materiality or contemplation of the material aspects of the body, you know, the different things that make up the body. These are traditional um, practices or contemplating death and the dissolution of the body. Again, very much working with the materiality of the body. So this is a second set of body awareness practices. And the third is, is kind of more what we're doing here, which is um, exploring more the energy aspect of the body. And if this doesn't immediately make sense, don't worry. <laughs> That's okay. It can sound a bit esoteric or new age. Um, but actually, what we were doing today with the breath, you know, relating to the breath as an energy rather than just as a physical happening and you know what you were doing with the qigong in the morning as well and, and what that opens up in in our experience you know the possibility to to breathe in different ways the possibility to breathe um, through different parts of the body not just through what we conceive of as what or what we know about the physical breath and so in samadhi practice, this is primarily the, the type of body awareness that we're working with. And it's a real tuning in to the aliveness and the sensitivity of, of the body. And uh, for me, it sometimes really feels like um, it's like a real kind of flowing in and, and feeling this aliveness and this sensitivity in this organism. <laughs> in this thing that I think I know, you know, because I've been inhabiting it for nearly 45 years, you know, but just like relating to it in a different way. So kind of speaking about, about samadhi practice as this, um, resting into or um, getting more in touch with the aliveness and the sensitivity in the body on an energy level. Um, and another way of speaking about it, another aspect of samadhi, is that one that I mentioned in the beginning, that gathering, that collecting. We can say... Um, gathering ourselves into awareness, into that which knows, which feels, which sensitivity, again, 
you can meet experience in a very um, direct and intimate level. Again, very alive. And so I was speaking about the importance of seeing this samadhi. You know, even now when I'm talking about it, I can feel it kind of, even as I'm speaking, it kind of goes like, woo, you know, something where kind of, woo, that up there, you know, far away from where I am, perhaps. I don't know, maybe some of you have been in, you know, deep states of absorption today. And to really bring it back to, to groundedness, and I think the body really helps with that, but to really be grounded that this spectrum, remembering the spectrum, and that often there is somewhere in our experience, somewhere in our energy body experience, where there is a degree of samadhi, most of the time. And that can just be a sense of okayness. You know, just something feeling okay. Something feeling um, undisturbed or untangled or not um, tight and tense. And a really beautiful aspect of the practice is that we begin to consciously open to that. Because our natural bias of our mind is to notice the contraction and what isn't okay. Yeah, so we're with the samadhi practice and this widening and sensitizing of the awareness into more of our being, begin to notice the places that feel okay or comfortable or nice or not uncomfortable, you know. And when we, when we learn to do that, it's, it's, it's a real resource for us, yeah? It's a real resource for us. Sometimes, you know, there can be um, some turmoil, you know, in the, in the, in the mind um, or in the body. There can be some pain. And learning to find also that which is not in turmoil, also that which is not in pain, or even feels okay, or, or good, pleasant. That kind of really widens up the base of, of our lives. Widens up the practice, and really a real resource for us. So in that noticing the times when we're, kind of when there's an ideal or an idea, that's kind of being set up in the mind. Noticing that, seeing if we can reground ourselves in what is present here now and the knowledge that when we are aware of what is here, when we can connect to a degree of well-being in the here and now, we can build on that. That allows us to build on that. So I'd just like to um, say a little bit about some supports to this practice, some things that can really support us in this exploration. And, you know, for some of us it may come kind of pretty naturally, and for many of us 
um, this practice is a bit of like going against the grain. Like I said, we're, uh, we have a, a strong habit, strong conditioning to focus on the negative. So it can be a bit of a... And sometimes, um, again, my friend Rob, when, when he teaches this, he often says, you know, people come up to him and say, is this even Buddhist? <laughs> you know, and, and yeah, it is. <laughs> it is, you know, but often it, it's not emphasized, it's not taught so much in this way, especially um, in our tradition, the insight tradition, and the way it moved um, to the West. Um, it hasn't really um, come with much of that yet, but it's very much um, in the tradition, it's very much in the teachings. So some supports some supports to this practice. Um, and and, and they, they might sound familiar, some of them. So the first one is, is intention. Yeah, coming back to, to intention. And particularly that intention of um, practice as an act of kindness. Really coming back to that when, um, when we feel we need a bit more uh, fuel, when we need a bit more oomph. To motivate us. Another um, really supportive exploration, Nathan mentioned it this morning, we call it the two P's, playfulness and patience. Playfulness and patience. So these two uh, really, really strong supports for, for practice and particularly for this practice. Being um, really allowing ourselves to to be playful, creative, to experiment. And Nathan said today, this is an art. This meditation is an art. It's really alive. So to really allow ourselves to play. And with that, to also have patience, you know, to not have this sense of I should be somewhere and that somewhere is this place. And if I'm not there, then I'm worthless, you know, which often creeps in. And so the two can really, um, really nourish each other. You know, when we say you know, playfulness and patience, they can seem quite disconnected. But actually, they're very, they, they really work together. I was remembering um, when I was reflecting on this talk um, a couple of years ago, being on a one-month personal retreat and um, working with, with samadhi practice um, and really getting into this measuring mind, you know, measuring my progress, really getting into, you know, where I wanted to be rather than where I was, <laughs> really getting into that tension. And in that kind of situation, you know, when that's going on, there's no patience and there's no playfulness. It becomes very dry very rigid, very painful. And then just remembering, you know, remembering playfulness, remembering patience, and the whole system just relaxed, you know. It was like, then it's perfectly fine to be where I am. <laughs> yeah, it's absent. This is where I am. It's perfectly fine. And when I'm here, I can actually start to experiment if I'm present with where I am rather than caught up in the idea of where I want to be or where I should be or where I could be if I did the practice better <laughs> whatever whatever the particular tune is that plays in your head 
So having the, the patience and, and that feeds the playfulness and the playfulness feeds the patience because playfulness can bring enjoyment into the practice right now. You know, so the goal becomes less important. And really work together. The other um, supports are um, what we call the two S's, steadiness and sensitivity. And in some degree, they're similar. But just that steadiness of, you know, coming back, staying with the practice, staying steady, staying committed. But doing that not in a kind of a dead, <laughs> dry, rigid way, but a sensitive, alive way, like playing with that. Being sensitive to what is present right now, which then allows me to work with that appropriately, attend to that appropriately. So as we work with these, with these different supports and as we become um, more familiar with the territory of practice, with the, with the territory of um, this you know, particular practice that we're cultivating, and with our own being, with our patterns and conditionings, this familiarity supports us to get less hooked by um, mind states that arise and can get in the way of the practice. Yeah? So this familiarity, this aliveness, this sensitivity, it supports us to become less hooked. And this is really important because as Nathan was speaking yesterday, you know, our pattern, our conditioning is to get lost in our mind states, to get identified with a mind state, to believe the mind state completely. I think this is who I am. And then we lose perspective. And we lose spaciousness. We lose sensitivity and aliveness. So I'd like to, to speak a little bit, well, if I'm honest, it's probably going to be more than a little bit. <laughs> Prepare yourselves. <laughs> I'd like to speak about um, five particular um, mind states, which are traditionally called the hindrances, um, obstacles, things that get in the way of, of our practice. And, um, you know, in the last few months, I, I feel like actually... There's so much to, to explore and to learn about with the hindrances, so much. And uh, I came across um, an article by Jack Cornfield um, when he speaks about the hindrances, and he calls them the disruptions of the mind and the blocks to the heart. I think it's really beautiful. The disruptions <coughs> of the mind and blocks to the heart. That's actually what the how they um, affect us, how they affect us. And a very useful way of um, kind of looking at them is like filters. They're, they're very strong mind states that um, kind of tend to take over the mind and to color our perception, to color our perception. And they're very, very natural for human beings. It's really important to remember. They're really natural. It's not something wrong with any of us. 
because we experience them. They're very natural for human beings. So I'd like to just um, say a little bit about them and, and particularly speak about how to work with them skillfully. And the five, um, the five hindrances, I'll just say it now and then I'll go into each of them separately, are um, a mind state of, and, and you might find some of this familiar from last night, um, sensual desire, aversion, what is usually translated as sloth and turpa, kind of dullness and low energy in the mind, restlessness, anxiety and worry, and doubt, that's the fifth. Restlessness, anxiety, and worry are one. <laughs> Wonderful hindrance. Um, and so, you know, there's, you, you probably don't remember the list of the eight pairs of mind states from yesterday, but they, they correspond. You know, there's desire and desire, aversion and aversion. Um, the depressed, low mind, which is the, the sloth and turpa mind, the restless mind, restlessness, and doubt, which is, um, in, my, in my experience at least, very, very closely related to confusion or ignorance. So how to work with them? And, and I'd, I'd first like to say um, kind of general ways of working that kind of work with all of them, any of them. Um, so, really important to notice that they're present. <laughs> Seems um, kind of obvious, but really important step here to notice, because like I said, often they're filters that color the experience, and so we're not actually aware a lot of the time that, that the hindrance is there, or multiple hindrances are there, and they're coloring our experience. And so actually noticing that, um, that a hindrance or several hindrances are present. When we notice that, as Nathan was saying yesterday, it already offers us some, some space and some perspective. Just the noticing means that the mind isn't 100% caught up or subjected to the, to the point of view of the hindrance. When we notice that a hindrance or hindrances are present, really helpful to ground in the body, really helpful to ground in the body, to feel as much as we can what is happening in the body and to find ways of bringing interest. So the real kind of magic trick of working with hindrances is to be able to turn them into an object of interest for us. And this is not easy. Yeah, but that's the kind of magic trick. That's what shifts. If we turn the hindrance into an object of our attention, an object of our interest. So some general things that work when we, when we notice that, um, that a hindrance is present. One is looking for that contraction of the awareness that we've been speaking about. With any hindrance, there'll be a contraction of awareness. Yeah, if there's desire contracted around the object of desire. When there's aversion, we're contracted because we're pushing away. When we're tired, there's a contraction because usually we have some aversion to the tiredness. <laughs> there'll be a contraction. When we're restless, there'll be a contraction because it's unpleasant again. You, know, so you can already get a sense of how interrelated they are. 
So noticing the contraction and then seeing if we can open very gently. Noticing the contraction, okay, can I open the awareness, use the breath energy to open the awareness. Just noticing that. And sometimes just noticing contraction. So we're shifting the attention to something that's much more easy to pay attention to, the contraction. And that, again, gives more space. Sometimes, um, especially if there's a multiple hindrance attack, a lot are very strong. Yeah, it, it can help to just connect to intention and inspiration again. So we, we, we connect to our intention or we connect what inspires us to practice. And that can be like a real, um, you know, there's this classic image of the Buddha touching the ground you know, as a way of dealing with the hindrances, actually, when he was sitting under the tree. You know, so that sense of grounding ourselves in that which is beyond the small me, the small self, our inspiration, our intention for practice. Meta practice, really useful with all the hindrances. It's a great antidote to, um, particularly to aversion. That's the way it was taught originally but can really also help with restlessness, with tiredness, with doubt. Really, really useful. Sometimes can really um, help to energize or to broaden the perspective. Not taking the hindrance personally. (laughs) Really, really useful. And like I said, remembering these are natural, it's a natural phenomena. That happens to you know we have a, hum, a, a human mind hindrances will arise natural phenomena not personal and so sometimes um, you know just using something like not me not mine you know this aversion it's not me it's not mine this doubt it's not me not mine using that to uh, remind ourselves to not take it personally And so that's kind of all general things, and it's probably enough (laughs) in many ways. But I'll say a little bit more about each one also. So sensual desire, and really useful to remember here that in uh, Buddha Dharma, sensual desire includes thinking. Yeah, The mind is a sense. And so it includes the thinking. So often when we have very um, strong thought patterns, there's something in there that's sucking us, you know, pulling us towards it. So very simple inquiry can be helpful sometimes. Does this lead to suffering? Right now, in my experience, is this pull, and following this pull, does this lead to suffering or to the end of suffering or no suffering? Real, real inquiry. What is it in this object that's pulling me so strongly? can really be helpful. Aversion, you know, which includes fear, blame, uh, rejection, judgment ill will, you know, all this huge 
bundle of delights. Sometimes um, breaking it down to notice the different layers in there. Nathan spoke about the two arrows. Sometimes there's an unpleasantness in the object of the aversion. And then there's suffering that comes from the pushing away, from the actual movement of aversion itself. So breaking that down into the two can sometimes be really helpful, again, to make space to um, dissolve some of the identification. Sometimes this is a bit of of a mind trick, but I like it, is noticing that aversion and desire actually come together. So if aversion is strong, there's desire for the source of the aversion to, you know, for something else to be there rather than that. And if desire is present, there's an aversion to whatever is present right now. Yeah, we're being pulled to something else. Sometimes noticing that connection can also just loosen up the stickiness a little bit. Sloth and turpa are very, probably very common at the beginning of, of a retreat, the first days. Um, more attention to the in-breath can really help, and particularly paying attention to the energy that's coming into the body as we breathe in can really, really help. And bringing in experimentation and playfulness with the breathing can help generate interest and energy. Uh, sometimes things like imagining light coming in to the, to the head or the face as you're, as you're meditating can, can enliven. With restlessness, um, anxiety, worry, sometimes there's a boredom. You know, the mind is actually bored and so it's creating stimulation. Other times there's just an excess of energy, just like with sloth and turpa, there's too little energy. <coughs> so recognizing that, uh, also possible to explore the breath. To explore the breath, sometimes with the, in, with the out breath, there can be more relaxation. Sometimes it's actually the in breath that is useful. So exploring, how does the breath affect the mind state? my favorite smiling (laughs) so sometimes actually even if you don't feel like it (laughs) creating a smile in your face as you're uh, feeling the restlessness and the agitation can really shift things it's actually been scientifically proven but I won't go into that but just as a technique and humor also so it can be physically smiling and then any humor that comes in the mind and, and sometimes restlessness, you know, can be really funny. So, you know, just inviting that energy in can really, really support and, and again, disentangle us a little bit. Another um, way of working with restlessness, you might get a hint that this is one I'm quite familiar with, um, is to broaden the focus broaden the focus of of awareness Um, either feeling the whole body breathing sometimes if the whole body is breathing um, or breathing out in and out at different points 
in the body. Um, and sometimes opening actually to something external like sound can really, really help. It opens up the perspective. And, you know, with restlessness, it's like a lot of energy happening in a small space. So if we open up the space, the, re the energy has a lot more space to move around and it becomes much less of a problem, if that makes sense. So anything that broad broadens and opens the attention. So the fifth, um, the, fifth, the fifth hindrance, the fifth kind of block is doubt. And uh, this can be, uh, for many of us, really, really tricky. Um, it has this debilitating quality to it. And um, we often tend to, A, find it quite difficult to identify it, and B, become very entangled in it um, and identified with it. And it, it can manifest in, you know, feeling uncertain, you know, am I doing the right thing? Am I not doing the right thing? What am I doing wrong? Um, being indecisive or feeling powerless. These, these are all manifestations of doubt. And in the practice, you know, usually it comes in relation to, you know, doubt in myself. I'm not good enough. I can't do this. Um, doubt in um, the teachings or the teachers. You know, they don't know what they're saying. This isn't the teaching for me. Um, I should have gone and done this other retreat, you know. All these variations that come up, really common. Don't feel guilty if you've thought that. Um, and doubt in the practice. You know, this is not leading anywhere. I don't believe the Buddha was really enlightened, you know, whatever it comes, you know, like that. that um, a lot of doubt, but... For a lot of us, especially coming from Western cultures, it's a lot of self-doubt that comes up. And I was... Um, see, we're getting to the end. Um, I was reading um, a, a really uh, touching story about doubt earlier today, and I, I just thought I'd, I'd share that. So this is from an American teacher called uh, Philip Moffat. Last year, while teaching a month-long silent retreat, we were faced with what to do about a yogi who was not fully participating. He wasn't showing up for the sittings or attending the Dharma talks, and he was avoiding scheduling an individual interview. One of the retreat managers even observed him leaving the retreat center on two occasions. I volunteered to talk to him and assess whether he should be asked to leave. When I inquired about his retreat experience, he told me that although he had been sick, the retreat had been going fine. But as we talked, his story became much more complex. He was suffering from an illness that doctors said would likely kill him in the next six months. And he had come to the retreat to try and make peace with his circumstances. I asked him after, you know, offering my, um, you know, sh my sense of um, 
sympathy for his condition, I asked him why he wasn't coming into the hall or coming to interviews. His answer was surprising. He had previously been hospitalized two times, each time not knowing if he would survive. During the first hospital stay, his meditation practice had been immensely comforting. He had been in a room by himself with a window looking out onto a tree, and he had spent many hours meditating with nature as his object of concentration. During his second hospitalization, he shared a room with another patient. His view of the outdoors was blocked by a screen, and the other patient played the television and radio constantly. He tried repeatedly to meditate, but couldn't calm his mind in that environment. He was an emotional mess the whole time he was in hospital. His family and friends, who had been inspired by his equanimity during his first hospitalization, responded to the frustration he felt during his second stay by urging him, just use that meditation stuff you did last time. As a result, he felt as if he had failed both himself and those he cared for. His confidence completely eroded and he doubted himself and his ability to meditate. He had hoped that coming to this retreat would restore his faith in himself. Instead, he was so paralyzed with self-doubt that he could not participate. He did not feel worthy of going into the meditation hall. His doubt was leading him further into fear, which only brought about more uncertainty. His story was heartbreaking. The reason he had left the retreat on two occasions was to go to a nearby hospital for his required twice-weekly injections. He had been too self-critical and embarrassed to tell any of the teachers. And so he goes on to um, speak about the process, the work that they did together with this. But I think that what's really powerful in, in this really heartbreaking story is how, um, how strong doubt can be for us. And this is an extreme situation, you know, but it's actually something that I think as we listen we all resonate with. It be so strong. And it can be so strong that it can prevent us, it can get in the way of accessing resources that are there for us, of support, you know, in ourselves and in others. You know, in the story, um, they really work through the doubt and eventually, you know, he, he can come back to practice and find comfort again in the practice, which, which is really beautiful. But, and, and often, you know, we need to go through this, um, you know, to see the doubt for what it is and to work with it. So some things that can help with doubt. Um, one is really acknowledging the humanness of it. This, again, it's, it's very, it can be very painful, very strong. It's very human. Acknowledging that it's okay not to know everything. It's okay to be imperfect. 
And it's okay not to be in control. A lot of time the doubt arises because we have this expectation of ourselves to be perfect. We have this expectation of ourselves to know. And we have this expectation of ourselves to control, to be able to control circumstances and conditions. And I think what's really strong in this, in this story that I just read, this experience of this man, is how much our experience is shaped by conditions and how difficult that is to see some of the time. So putting the blame here, feeling there's something wrong with me, because I can't meditate when there's television and radio on all the time. Yeah. And last time I could meditate, but it was quiet and there was a tree. But it's about me. It's about me. So sometimes also what can help is getting to know what underlies the doubt. Getting to, to feel, okay, there's this confusion, there's this sense of inadequacy, there's this sense of um, shakiness. Whatever way it manifests, helplessness. What is underlying and getting into more direct contact? You know, there may be fear there, there may be hurt there. Getting more into contact with that. And then bringing metta and compassion and the breathing to that. You know, opening to what is actually there. So often, just this recognizing doubt as doubt, as I was saying in the beginning about all the hindrances. And this is a mental condition that has arisen due to causes and conditions. Yeah, so it's not my fault. It's arising out of causes and conditions. And the question is, how do I relate to it? How do I relate to it? So that not me, not mine can really help here. Or the naming is just doubt. This is doubt. Noticing the the contraction that comes around that again with a feeling I should know, I should be in control, I should be able to do something with that. And like you know, Nathan spoke of yesterday really seeing how contraction, grasping or pushing away, the sense of self and the suffering, they arise together. They arise together. And we can start, when we begin to see that, that can really create space. And so playing with the doubt, you know, sometimes we can see when the mind contracts around the doubt, that's when it becomes suffering. Before that, it was uncomfortable or unpleasant, that's when it becomes suffering. So there's some good news in all of this, some good news also. All these hindrances, all these mind states, they're ways of looking, they're they're filters that we look at experience through, that we perceive life through. And as, and like everything else, they're conditioned. Yeah, the ways of looking that are conditioned. 
So as we practice, as we bring interest to the hindrances, as we play and experiment with working with them, we're learning to respond to limiting mind states, to obstructing mind states, learning to respond to them in ways that reduce suffering, actually, that reduce their stickiness, that open up the vista, open up the space. And we begin to nourish, to cultivate other ways of looking that actually support our happiness, support samadhi, support our well-being, and support freedom. <coughs> and when I say our, I mean our. Yeah. So not just mine, but ours. So let's just have a, a quiet moment to close together. So may our practice together continue to nourish the well-being and the welfare of all beings, including ourselves. Thank you for your listening. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.